And welcome to another episode of Change Making Women. Today on the show, um, Ziad has not been able to join us yet, but I am here, Marianne, um, broadcasting from London, and we are talking to Claire Mahon today. Sing it with me, sister. Sing it with me, brother. Sing it with me, father. Sing it with me, brother. And She's going to maybe, oh well, I'm going to ask her to tell us where she is and a little bit about herself so that um, you can find out a bit more about her and then we'll, um, yeah, we'll launch into the show. So, Claire. Thanks, Marianne. Hi, Marianne. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you on your podcast. I've been loving listening to all these amazing women change makers and I'm honoured and delighted to be amongst them. So, thank you. I'm calling you from Geneva in Switzerland. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm based in Geneva, where I've been living for for about 13 years now, because it's the head of the United Nations work on human rights. Mm -hmm. And I'm an international human rights lawyer. So this is uh, what I do and where I'm based. Mm -hmm. But um, I uh, often think that um, a human rights lawyer is is kind of my professional tag, but really what I actually do is uh, quite varied and and wide. I um, do coaching and mentoring Mm -hmm. for um, change makers and advocates and leaders, uh, mm-hmm. particularly a lot of uh, uh, young professionals wanting to enter the, the world of international affairs and, in, mm-hmm. and human rights. Mm-hmm. And also I do teaching and training at universities and run online courses. And I do a lot of consulting and advising too, to the UN and to all sorts of other organisations and, and individuals. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a broad range of things. Hard it's to wrap up in thirty seconds. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you how did you come to be doing that range of things, Claire? I, I imagine you started off somewhere in in that, and um, it kind of grew from somewhere. So, what first inspired you to do this kind of work, and how did you get started with it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I suppose like everybody, I started just with the, the regular kind of career that you think you're supposed to have when you mm-hmm. come out of university or college or whatever. So I began work in a law firm as a lawyer. And I, I knew going into that, that wasn't really what I wanted. And I'd already had the um, opportunity to do a an intensive course on human rights in Geneva. And I just loved it. You know, when you arrive somewhere and you realise wow, this really feels like it fits mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, I, I could make this happen here. So mm-hmm. I um, set that as my goal to return to Geneva. I was growing up in Australia and New Zealand at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, I um, decided to return to Geneva and practice international human rights law. So I moved yeah. here when I got an internship at an NGO. I began okay. as an intern at Amnesty International and, and then moved on to a job there. And since then, um, I suppose it came about the, the range of things because I'm really easily bored. <laughs> I sometimes okay. feel a bit schizophrenic about my interests. But um, I think I just love the combination of being out there really doing real human rights work on the ground in practice. Mm-hmm. But I also love mentoring and coaching other people and helping to, to kind of nurture them and to share the knowledge and experience. Mm-hmm. And really uh, my current incarnation of kind of running this, uh, I run a, a – um, a non-profit organization, a non-governmental organization, and uh, a consulting firm and under this banner of a, a social enterprise. Mm-hmm. 
Global Human Rights Group. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I set up the Global Human Rights Group was I actually went through a period of being really sick. And uh, so I had to kind of give up my work at university, give up my, my kind of paid day jobs and figure out how do I... Um, how do I change my professional life to match these new physical limitations? Right. Okay. I'm still doing the things that I really love because I still wanted to be out there teaching and doing human rights work and coaching and mentoring. So I had to kind of figure out how to do that. So now I um, do it for myself and I hire other people and that's really exciting. Yeah, okay, cool. So you, you managed to restructure what you were doing in a way that fitted with what you were able to do. Is that... Is that yeah exactly right and that was a really big um, change and realization that sometimes uh, you, know, you have these professional dreams for what you're gonna do and where you're gonna be I remember um, being some of my first interviews at a law firm when I was fresh out of um, university I was asked questions like where do you see yourself at the peak of your career mm -hmm. and uh, I stupidly gave answers like uh, UN Secretary General mm -hmm. and of course now I know the truth. I wouldn't actually ever want that job. Yeah, but yeah. you think you're going for a certain career and then along the way life kind of happens mm -hmm. and you have to find uh, new and interesting ways of making that work for, but still achieve the goals that you want to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So um, you started with the law piece, but then you, you, know, you grew into this um, running your own um, not-for-profit yeah, NGO. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the human rights aspect is something I've always been interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, I joined Amnesty International when I was about 12 mm -hmm. and um, set up the, the local Amnesty International group at my high school. And it's really interesting for me to kind of look back now. Uh, I'm 40 this year, so it's kind of one of those years that you start to reflect on where am I and where am I going from here? And uh, I look and at all the things that I was doing in high school um, are actually pretty similar to what I'm doing now, although I would hope I've matured in some ways. I certainly mm -hmm. haven't completely. Um, well, I set up the very first uh, Big Sisters program in my high school for mentoring um, kids in the, the junior grades by matching them with um, partners in the, the senior grades. So okay. that idea of mentoring people was obviously you know, always there. And I, I um, was involved in amnesty and really passionate about human rights. And those are all still things that I've found different ways of doing all throughout my career, whether mm -hmm. it's been the, the focus of my career or whether it's been kind of the incidental stuff that I do while I'm working for a different organisation or while I'm doing other things. So, yeah. So it's interesting that, to see how life brings you out that way. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm interested to delve a bit more into the Global Human Rights Group and, and what, it, what, what work you're actually doing right now with it um, and how that brings in these varied skills that you've picked up along yeah. the way. Yeah. So tell yeah. us more about well, what you're doing right the now. The Global Human Rights Group is, um, this, uh, is an organisation where we have this uh, non-profit arm called the Global Human Rights Clinic. And it's really an experiential teaching um, uh, opportunity. So many universities have an international human rights law clinic or something where students get the opportunity to work on real human rights cases right, or right. projects. Got it. Got it. And 
a lot of universities don't have that because they simply don't have the resources or they don't have the people with the knowledge to do that. So this, um, the Global Human Rights Clinic, we run um, a number of different projects which are based on the teamwork of students, recent graduates, young professionals from all around the world. So it's kind of cross-institutional in that sense of you don't have to come from a particular university or you don't even have to be at university. Mm -hmm. And we take a, a topic that's um, particularly an, an issue at the moment mm -hmm. and we uh, do whatever the group decides or, or it's based around learning while doing. So um, myself and other experts in the field kind of mentor the group to um, figure out what are the best ways of addressing this issue in a way mm -hmm. where we use our specialisation, which is uh, knowledge and access to the United Nations human rights mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And we try to see how can we build on and expand the work that's being done at a national level. So if there's uh, NGOs or others already working on the issue at home, how do we use the UN mechanisms to build their capacity and make a difference in a different way with the work that they're doing? Sure. So people get to learn by doing. Um, and then we also do all sorts of other things uh, along the way as well. So for example, the, the last few weeks, because we're in um, February uh, of the first, uh, today marks the first month of um, President Obama, uh, sorry, President Obama, I wish, President Trump's administration in yeah. the US. We've been doing a lot of work with people who are affected by the executive orders that he's mm -hmm. put out, who suffer from the Muslim travel bans, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We also, um, in the consulting work we do, we work with a lot of NGOs around the world who are stuck in places where civil society is under threat. So yeah. maybe a government has a law in place that says you can't have a, an, an NGO, non-governmental organisation mm -hmm. or non-profit group um, and you can't talk about human rights issues, you can't get funding from foreign funders, that kind of thing. Yeah. And this really impacts on, on a lot of people. Um, we've seen people who uh, have had all their assets confiscated, who yeah. get thrown in jail, who have their passports um, taken off them, they're put under travel bans or house arrest, or they're put in jail and they're tortured in jail, all mm. because they're what we call human rights defenders. They're mm. out there standing up for human rights issues and, and pointing out the problems and trying to work to find the solutions as well. So we've been working with a lot of them to uh, help them to continue the work that they do, even if they're under threat. And one of the ways that we do that is by helping them to um, have a home and a place here in, uh, as in a home for their organisation, um, here in Geneva, where they can access the United Nations and, and put their work forward at the international level. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things we're doing. One of the projects that we're just about to launch a call for volunteers on is looking at um, the right to housing in New Zealand. And many okay. people may think, oh, that's a bit weird because there's so many you know, starving children in the world. Why are you looking at a Western country like New Zealand? But New Zealand actually has the highest rate of child poverty in all the OECD nations. And the issue of housing and the way that um, children are dying because of the poor quality, particularly of state-provided housing there, is a real concern. And the mm -hmm. government simply isn't doing enough about it. So what we're going to do is pull together a team of volunteers who want to learn more about how to use the UN and how to really look at any kind of practical human rights issue. Mm -hmm. And we're going to um, work with uh, putting together information to encourage the United Nations expert in this area called the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Housing mm -hmm. to go to New Zealand and investigate the situation and give recommendations to the government about what they can do better.
Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. That's I was, yeah. was going to say. Give us a give us a practical example. And so the people that might come and volunteer um, to support you with that piece of work could be from anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Because these days we work virtually. So um, we set up webinars with team members to discuss issues and we we work online. And one of the things I'm really committed to and that the organisation has been set up to do is to help people access the information that they need and the tools and the experience that they need to actually go out into the world, into their own communities and do um, and defend human rights, do real human rights advocacy. Right. So, for example, uh, today uh, I've just um, begun a, an online course called How to Stand Up for Human Rights in the New Dystopian Era. Mm-hmm. And this is part of our, our um, work in trying to help everyday people learn more about human rights, figure out what to do and how to do it. So most people have seen uh, your Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds and things have been blowing up about what's happening since um, Trump got elected, but also what's happened since Brexit or there's so many things happening all around the world lately that, that really feels as though we're, we're on this precipice of disaster when it comes to human rights issues mm-hmm. in so many places. But we share stuff on Facebook and we, we read all the news. And for a lot of people, all that does is just provide a sense of overwhelm yeah. and this real sense of, what do I do about this? What, yeah. what can I do? What can one person do? And so this course is a, um, a short, easy to access, very affordable online program, which we've developed with lots of scholarships and discounts available to help real everyday people, not human rights experts, not people who would normally even label themselves change makers or advocates, and help them to understand, well, what are human rights? Why do they matter? And what do you do with them? And out of all these different options that we get sent about get involved in this and call this senator or write this letter or mm. attend this march, what can we really do that's going to make a difference? Mm-hmm. What, where should we spend our money and our time and our energy? Because we only have so much of all of those things, right? So right. how do we figure out wh- what the best use of that is to really make a difference? So tell us, <laughs> give us a bit of a, give us a bit of a um, insight into to, to how you would answer that, you know, the question in a way that's, that's implicit in what you just said. Oh, yeah. How, okay. how, how would you recommend people think about figuring that out? Because it's something we talked about a bit on the show before and then it's something yeah. that, uh, yeah, you know, uh, people have obviously different answers to and I totally relate to that um uh observing that sense of frustration right now about well what is it that that i should do but i'm interested in your perspective you know with that human rights kind of um lens sure um, and legal lens as it were you know (laughs) (laughs) i think um i've got a long answer and a short answer to that and i'll start with um the short answer maybe uh And first of all, I want to say, we all feel that overwhelm. You know, I'm here teaching other people what to do and coaching and and mentoring individual people one-on-one and in small group sessions and things about how to implement these things in their own lives. Yet I wake up every morning and read the news and go, oh my God, it's worse than yesterday. What can I do? Mm. And just want to turn over and go back to sleep. And that's really normal, I think, when we're in this phase of overwhelm. So my short answer to what can we do is... Pick a focus. Yeah. Um, find out what or, or 
just maybe spend that time to sit and be quiet with ourselves and really tap into what it is that we're thinking about and feeling about what is it that makes us passionate and, and how you like a lot of people say find your passion and that's all really well and good to say but first of all it doesn't happen that easily for most people I think one of the easiest ways I've found to identify what area I really want to focus my time and energy and money on is what annoys me what really riles me up you know when we're having a conversation at dinner those difficult family conversations what am I okay just sitting there and nodding and thinking oh my god you're an idiot through and then what am I I'm just always going to say something even if I regret it or what are those things where I it makes my blood boil when I read it and enough to then start ranting to everybody I see that's where I know I need to really focus my energy on that because I think um, we can change the world, every single one of us, Mm. but we can't do everything. We can't, you know, achieve everything. We can't address everything we're annoyed about or that we're passionate about. So finding a bit of a focus I think is really helpful. Um, The longer answer is uh, we begin with informing ourselves. We begin with educating ourselves and learning how to communicate what we know with other people as well and listening i think we don't do enough of that always just sit back and listen on human rights you hear a lot of people talk about oh i want to be a voice for the voiceless but the voiceless so-called voiceless only are voiceless because we don't shut up long enough to listen to them Mm -hmm. so we can often just learn a lot by listening observing learning and then figure out how can we pass that on. So that's when we then launch into action, like trying to influence decision makers, whether it's through writing or meeting or calling and um, putting things into place in our own lives, like walking our talk, Mm. have conversations with people. Um, In my business, I run our nonprofit and the consulting firm on human rights-based principles. So, you know, making sure we have non-discriminatory hiring practices. Sounds really easy and simple, that's actually not. And actually, those little things, if every single one of us do them, it's like recycling for the environment movement. It does make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so th- that's when you get into those other steps. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So, yeah, find your focus. That's what I, yeah, that's been what I've been saying yeah. for a couple of months too. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so th- let's, let's come back to you, Claire. Yeah. So... What motivates you personally to keep going with this kind of work? Because um, I can imagine that, that it has its challenges. As, as, yeah, um, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, tell us what, yeah. what, what motivates you personally. That is a difficult question um, because you're right, it has its challenges. And there have been times when I, I've been deeply depressed about yeah. it and there have been times when, um, uh, like many people working intensely in human rights, you have um, trauma and, and PTSD. But what motivates me to keep going is two things. Uh, one is my, my circle of friends. And that's taken me a long time to kind of figure out that it's not just every friend or or even all my close friends. It's actually this circle of amazing women that I have in my life Mm. who uh, I feel kind of surround me and circle me in love and support. And not just women, there are some men in there as well. Mm. (laughs) And these are the people that pick me up and keep me going and laugh with me. And I just know they're always there for me. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is um, seeing it work in practice 
you know, it's, I think many people working in human rights, it's easy to get disillusioned and dissatisfied that you're beating your head against the wall a lot of the time in the work that you do. And sometimes you're just fighting to make sure there's no backward movement in terms of people's human rights. Yeah. Um, uh, there's the governments are implementing them without cutting welfare or cutting education or healthcare, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we go a long way on a small success. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, you see one person whose life you've impacted, one community whose future has been made better because of change in the law or a change in how their government allocates budget to, to them, that kind of thing. And yeah. seeing that really work, that's what I hold on to. And I try to make sure I take photos of that kind of stuff or I write about it so that I've got a, a book of you know, evidence that this works <laughs> to get yeah. back to when I'm feeling really down. And, yeah, that, that's what keeps me going. So of all the things that have felt like achievements over the, the, the years you've been doing this kind of work, what's, what feels like the, the greatest achievement or the, or the biggest, I don't know, the most memorable it could yeah. be? I don't know. What, what, what stands out? For me, it's really clear. It's the, the achievements of my students and the people that I mentor and coach. Mm. Um, I have been so lucky to have these amazing people in my life, like students that I, I teach uh, university courses to or, or students that I have, uh, participants I have in my online courses, the people that I mentor or who pay me to, to coach them with their life and their careers and their, their futures and human rights and things. Mm. When they come back to me and, and so many of them, we stay in touch and, you know, yesterday I was on the phone to one who'd just arrived in Ethiopia to do a human rights mission there mm. for the, the organisation she works in. And she was calling me to say that she got the job she'd applied for that we'd been working on. So right. you know, that's the next stage for her. And somebody else just called me this afternoon. I've been working with him all weekend about a presentation he was doing at work today. And he called me to say, I nailed it. Um, so when... Um, the people I've been working with when they get into the university course that they never imagined they could get into or when they publish a paper in a, a journal or when they're on the news. Um, or, for example, a, a few weeks ago, I saw some of my students, um, as in the, they're no longer students, they're like attorneys with five to ten years practicing experience now, and they were the volunteers at the airport in the, the US where lawyers were, were mm. sitting in the airport helping people who were having trouble getting through customs there. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing, that makes my heart sing. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Good to hear. Um, so challenges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, Apart every day, getting out of bed. <laughs> Can go to bed. Doing my washing, remembering to do grocery shopping, <laughs> adulting. Let's just say adulting. <laughs> well, um, when I think about challenges, obviously there's like it, almost everything you work on in itself is challenging in this in, in the kind of field that you're in. But like, yeah. what challenges you um, personally about doing this kind of work, like? And maybe you were answering it there and make Yeah, no, I mean I suppose I was I was being funny, but I'm also being serious. Yeah, right. Everyday things like getting up in the morning sometimes, particularly if I'm feeling depressed or I'm exhausted or whatever, yeah, that's really tough. And you know, I thought at 40 I'd have the whole adulting thing down pat, but surprisingly enough, I don't. <laughs> Just that, you know, remembering to look after myself 
mm-hmm. or yeah, honestly buying groceries, that kind of thing, um, or having the energy to cook. <laughs> they don't do delivery in Geneva. <laughs> they do, but you've got to have an income for that that's really good and because it's really right. expensive here. And yeah. I run a non-profit, and although I've had lots of jobs and human rights does not mean earning no money by any means, I don't want to give anybody that impression because I think we all have the right to earn a good living. Yeah. Um, at the moment, you know, I've been in startup phase for my own non-profit for a long time and funding's tight. So yeah. delivery has to be, you know, very carefully allocated. Right, right. Yeah. Honestly, things like dating, you know, when you live in a world, when you live in a city or a t- country that's different to where you grew up and it's filled with so many other people from so many other places, you right. think that's full of lots of opportunities, but actually it's really hard to find people that you truly connect with. Mm-hmm. And it's a transient world people, uh, for many people. I mean, I've yeah. been here for 13 years, but many other people are here for a year or two and then right. they disappear again. Some mm-hmm. people work in the field, some people work in headquarters. Yeah. But then, you know, to, to get at probably the things you were implying in terms of what's difficult. Um, last week, uh, one of my, my colleagues and, and uh, someone we're working with, we're helping through our organisation who runs a, a human rights organization in Egypt, um, was in Geneva. Uh, we were helping him with some, some things here. And I was talking to him about uh, the research that his organization is doing on the levels of torture in prisons yeah. in Egypt. Yeah. And he was just saying very matter-of-factly, matter of, of course, uh, you know, when I said, what's the percentage? He said 100% everybody yeah. in prison there who's working on human rights issues, at least, is tortured. Yeah. And then later in the conversation, of course, we're talking about when he was in prison four months ago for an eight-month period and then the year before and the year before and he's been in and out of prison for his human rights work for most of his life. Mm. And then um, saying goodbye to him that day, knowing that what we've been trying to do is to protect him and help him, but the very great likelihood is as soon as he steps back into his country, he's going to be arrested. And so now we know what that means. So hugging goodbye to people like that and waiting to get the WhatsApp to see, did they arrive? Are they in jail? Do they need help? That kind of thing. Yeah, that that's really difficult. That takes its toll. But at the same time, um, uh, and that's, that's happened more than once, of course, and Mm. friends get killed for the work that they do. Uh, That's difficult. For me personally, my own travel is restricted because of the work that I do. This is not the case for every human rights defender and certainly not the case for most people living in Western countries. But sometimes there are um, some things that you do in terms of sharing information about human rights violations, about torture and abuse, which um, uh, can be criminalised in countries, even in our Western countries. So not being able to travel where I want, when I want, not being able to see family and friends. Yeah, that's difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you, and you touched on it before, um, how, you, how, you look up, how, how do you look after yourself in this yeah. context of, of doing this kind of work? Um, because, um, yeah, that's, that's a critical piece and, and, and it's one that I'm... Um, yeah, that is the central focus of what I'm trying to work on now um, is, is, is supporting women who are doing um, change-making work in the world to, to figure out how to do this. So mm. I'm interested in your reflections on that. Um, 
it's really hard to figure this out, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things I've spent my life trying to figure out is how to actually look after myself, how to relax and all that kind of thing. You know, I, I know the, the techniques, the meditation and the have a hot bath and climb a mountain <laughs> and get a massage and things and preferably all of those things together at once. And that sounds wonderful but, and it works for, you know, 10 minutes. But mm-hmm. uh, and, um, what do you really do? And I think I, I did say before... Um, my circle of of yeah. support that's that's really um what helps me to look after myself but also actually i have my own coaches and mentors and sometimes they're people who uh, I, I pay um as a coach i think that that's really important to have that kind of support in the same way that um i see a therapist because i think that's really important too because i go to the doctor if my leg hurts i go to the doctor and if my head hurts which it does from a lot of the work we do i go see a therapist so i think that those kind of looking after yourself things can't be um dismissed or or underrated um so yeah paying people to help me (laughs) and sometimes my coaches just help me with things like setting up a daily routine so i do get out of bed and i do go grocery shopping and i do leave enough time to cook for myself and then other times they help me with um, big picture strategy and life-changing decisions and that kind of thing and sometimes they help me navigate the dating scene (laughs) so yeah that's the kind of stuff and just getting out of myself, laughing, um, doing something different, taking so some time out. Yeah. Sounds like you have good support with, um, with, with this piece. And I think for some people, support is, is the most important thing in, in that yeah. piece sometimes. Um, and that's really hard to find and to keep, right? Yeah, it can be, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's what I'm learning and what I'm um, thinking quite a lot about now is that, that this piece, is a bit different for everyone so it's like exactly what, what works for me might not work for you and it's about um really getting clear about the needs and that we particularly have in this kind of whole subject of how you look after yourself and where that where the deficiencies in in us you know in us doing that are right now and 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 how we can work them. And, and like you said, sometimes we think, oh, you know, we must go for a spa weekend and it will all be solved. Yeah. In fact, it's about what we do, or, or I believe it's about what we do on a day-to-day and a week-to-week basis. Really, it's like how we do what we're doing in a way that doesn't um, completely deplete us. For me, that's... Exactly. It's, it's not just about us, it's about the work we're trying to do and it's about how we do that in a way that's sustainable you know so that we're here next year and not one of the things that I've really found valuable with that is um uh working on healthy boundaries Mm. and that sounds like a bit of a catchphrase um but I've I've been learning ways to really integrate that into my life so it's not just about saying no or telling people to go away and things but it's about really implementing them in a kind way that's kind to myself as well as to my work and to other people and I've learned from an amazing coach about healthy boundaries and um, in fact I've uh, become accredited in in her work it's Randy Buckley and so now I help other people learn that as well Mm -hmm. so healthy boundaries has been really important to me for that but the other thing I was going to say about that too is for me this may sound strange uh, another way that I've found has been really important in how I think about looking after myself 
is how I prioritize what I spend money on. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm, I'm normally a pretty risk taking person. I, I had a big um, social enterprise, uh, which uh, I tried to set up and which failed. So I've had lots of, well, not lots, but I've had business and, and financial failure. So I'm not usually that someone who stresses easily about money, mm-hmm. but it's more about prioritizing. So when I first, um, I've lived away from my immediate family since I was 16. So spending money on phone calls and flights has always been really important to me as a way of kind of connecting and mm-hmm. feeling grounded and things. And then these days, yes, yeah, spending money on takeaway, if I can't, if I don't have the time to cook is really important. Spending money on a house cleaner. And I know that sounds like it's coming from such a place of privilege, but honestly, this week, for example, because I'm going through a bit of a financial crisis, I can't afford to do grocery shopping, but I sure as hell can afford my my house cleaner because she helps me so much. I couldn't do my washing if it wasn't for her. Not because I actually can't, but because my time is better spent doing other things that bring me more joy and that help to look after me and help me achieve the work that I want to do. So those are priorities that I make mm-hmm. where yeah. I have to spend my money. Yeah, absolutely. I t- yeah, I totally agree with both of those things. Um, yeah, about, yeah. Um, bounds is definitely something that... Um, comes up a lot I think for women working yeah. in, in the, as, as, a, as an issue that need that needs some work and um yeah and I, and I totally rate Randy's work as well so um and, when and I used to be one of those people that was always right. saying yes and I always say that the success of my career to date is because I said yes to everything and it yeah. is yeah yeah me too me too me too but I never learned how to say yes and still look after myself and that's actually possible it's totally possible, but and and sometimes it requires a bit more no. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that's a hard one to learn. <laughs> yeah, it is for some of us, particularly. I think. Yeah, definitely. It's yeah. Anyway, it's we could do a whole show about it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> tell tell I'm, I'm intrigued by the social enterprise <laughs> that didn't work out. I'm just in- yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's basically what I'm doing now, having a consulting firm and uh, that, that is a not just for profit, that right, where the yeah, income yeah. from that supports the work of the NGO. Yeah. But what we were doing at the time was actually making a physical home for that. So we had this um, premises yeah. uh, right in downtown Geneva, and we we're trying to um, make this a, a co-working space and a coffee yeah. shop and a place yeah, yeah. where our NGO could be based and, you know, this kind of community centre feel where everybody could get together and do great stuff and we'd have evening it's talks idea. it sounds magnificent right and yeah. from everything that like my experience now says it's so needed and it would work but we had lots of problems with the authorities here getting approvals because we're actually renovating the space so right. it was costing a lot of money to renovate the space and eventually i mean uh, i think anybody outside of geneva would be absolutely flabbergasted by this but um we uh it costs I spent about 150,000 Swiss francs, which is what I think about 100,000 pounds right, right. Um, or 150,000 US dollars, mm-hmm. getting it to the point where the government was able to say, yes, you can open once you have installed the ventilation system. And the ventilation system was going to cost another 150,000. Wow. And that's when I said, yeah, we don't have that money. I never had the money in the first place. So I was doing lots <laughs> of crowdfunding and that kind of thing. I was, you know, yeah, working yeah. on that start before you're ready kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Motivation and enthusiasm was going to push me over the, to the finish line. Um, and then I thought, look, really, if we're all about creating a space for community to get together to kind of change the world and be inspired and motivated, 
we can do a lot of that with that money in other ways. So that's when I had to pull the plug and I'm still paying for it. (laughs) And it was really hard. And there was a lot of tears and a lot of time spent in bed, not wanting to get out. But um, yeah, eventually I I picked myself up thanks to some of these amazing people who, you know, had donated money and helped me. And I'd been so embarrassed to to go back to them and say, it didn't work. I failed. And having them say, that's okay. The whole point was you tried and it was amazing and we loved the idea and we wanted it to work too. And it being totally okay was so liberating to me. So amazing to hear that. And I often think, uh, you know, I work um, a bit with funding for international development and um, quite a bit. And and I often think that um, we should have more... um, more spaces to talk about failure and uh exactly. and, and and why it's okay because if we're always which we which people always are trying to do things a bit differently to make them better then a lot of them are going to fail and in a business environment people would just accept that but somehow when we're trying to do not you know not 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 for profit work um it's 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 seen as like some sort of like there's almost like a stigma around something not yeah. working out. And I think that there's something about that, which is, um, yeah, a bit troubling actually. Absolutely. <laughs> so right. Absolutely. Right. I, I actually love to share about, well, no, I don't, that's a lie. It hurts and I don't like it. And it's embarrassing and I'm ashamed and things when I do share, but at the same time I do because it's so important because so many other people just, don't they just keep quiet or yeah in a business sense it's fine if you're three times bankrupt to be elected president of the united states right <laughs> like ran, you're a community organizer and had so completely screwed up that your whole organization failed three times in a row yeah you wouldn't be elected president of the united no, states right because you're just you know <laughs> exactly so in some circles it's fine and then in other circles we just have this feeling of shame and it's not just about the look financially it didn't work and we had to close up shop I made lots of mistakes along the way now I'd worked in other organizations and in academia and and in the real world and in corporate world for such a long time I'd thought I I know this I know how to supervise people I know how to delegate I know how to be the boss I've been the boss this is no problem and then when I went out on my own I was like oh, wow, this is totally different. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was really interesting. And I made yeah. so many mistakes, uh, things where I, yeah, I look back and cringe and things that didn't align with my values and kind of thing. Yeah. But it was all part of the learning process. And I'm not saying I'm never going to make those mistakes again. I'll make the same ones and different ones many more times because I don't learn that quickly. But <laughs> no, no, I often think that, um, you know, kind of authentic leadership is about, you know, being, being understanding that, you know, there'll be mistakes almost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like somehow once you get that. And <laughs> around that time that I was dealing with all of that, I um, was really into watching that um, TED talk that Brene Brown put out about vulnerability oh, yeah. and about shame. And mm. that actually is a lot of what got me through. So, yeah, getting my inspiration from other people that in my head are my friends, but in reality don't know me, um, also really <laughs> helps. So, you know, hearing her talk about what vulnerability means and how it's actually powerful rather than a weakness, yeah. that made me think, yeah, I'm so vulnerable, I'm so powerful. <laughs> yeah. And 
learn how to communicate that in a way that was powerful rather than it always bringing up these feelings of shame and embarrassment. Yeah. And I, I certainly think that it's, it, you know, um, this, the things that like that, that feel like failure are the things that kind of um, galvanize us to, to new discovery a lot of the time. So exactly. yeah, thank you for being, yeah. being willing to share about that. Um, I was going to ask you about what your, you know, what your biggest lesson had been and really with the emphasis of like, if you, if there's one thing you want to share with our listeners, what would it be? I don't know if maybe you've already shared yeah. it. But. I mean, there's all those different lessons I spoke about, but the one lesson really um, is I think that one person can make a difference, mm. but maybe not alone. Um, and that's, uh, I'm, I'm single at the moment, as probably you guessed from all my talk about dating, but <laughs> this idea that, um, yeah, of course we know uh, about the, the, if you want to see what a difference one person can make, think about a mosquito in a room kind of concepts and, and mm. it's cliche to say that, but, um, I, it, it's a really amazing feeling and it makes me feel immodest to say it, but I know that I've changed people's lives mm. and that feels really good, but it also makes me realize I can do that a lot more and so can everybody else around me. Now, whether that's by raising an, uh, a family of amazing people who are going to contribute to society or just regular everyday people who love each other and that's enough. Um, or, you know, we all have different ways in which we change the world around us, whether it's our world of relationships with other people or the, the big, big world. Um, but yeah, one person can change the world. But the times I know when I've changed the world the most are when I've had friendship and love and support and by love I mean my friends the people that support me the people who do say yeah you if that thing that bad thing happened or that failure happened but we love you and you did good and keep going keep getting out there that kind mm. of stuff so yeah that's uh, the not alone aspect I think for me is really important when it comes to how one person can make a difference I love that you can change the world but not alone <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire. It's been great having you on the show. And, uh, it's a delight to I, chat to you. Yeah, and I wish you all the best with the things that you're working on and, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. And our theme tune over and over was written and performed by Eleanor Brown, who you can find at eleanorbrownmusic.com. <laughs>